We're going to be reading out of Matthew chapter 4 today, verses 12 through 17. We've been in a sermon series called The New Normal, in which we've been looking at uh, Jesus as he prepares for his new normal uh, in Matthew 3 and 4. It's really the preparation of his ministry. And so what we've been doing is we've actually been going uh, back and forth between uh, the Matthew text that we've been looking at and then going back uh, to the Old Testament text that it supports. Uh, Matthew 3 and 4 is some of the most heavily quoted and alluded to Old Testament, uh, New Testament passages uh, we have. And so we thought it would be neat to actually really dive in and see what is the backdrop, what is the background for, uh, for these passages, and then spring ahead to Matthew and look at them. So last week we did uh, Isaiah chapter 9, and Isaiah chapter 9 is quoted in our passage this morning. So we took a good look at what was going on in Isaiah 9 to get us ready for now uh, the payoff. Now we get to look now at what was going on then in Matthew uh, chapter 4. So if you would, would you stand with me as we read our text this morning? Uh, God's words we stand for, my words you can sit back down for, but for God's words, let's stand and let's hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 4, 12 through 17. Before we do that, we say a prayer called the Shema out of Deuteronomy 6. It's a way to refocus us, kind of get us ready to hear from God. Say, God, with all of my heart, soul, might, and strength, God, will you come and will you speak to us today? So say it after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Matthew 4, starting in verse 12, says this. Now when Jesus had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then here's where this Isaiah passage comes in. The land of Zebulun and the land of Natali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, from that time on, now Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So just as a recap of what we talked about last week when we looked at Isaiah chapter 9, if you remember, Isaiah was a prophet of God to the people of Israel, and Israel had an identity. They had a calling that God had given to them early on, all the way back in Genesis 12, gave them an identity that they would be a light, a blessing to the nations. This is what they were supposed to do. By living out their way, by living under God's law, under his covenant, under his laws, that they were to then be a blessing, sort of a signpost to the world, that as they looked at how this nation, this kingdom was, was functioning, they go, ah, there's something different about them, and I like it. I, I want to be like that. This was God's plan, but they didn't do that. And a lot, uh, 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 over time, uh, the Israel, uh, the kingdom of Israel, did not live into their identity. And so Isaiah, being a prophet, knew that eventually God was going to take them over. That eventually they were going to be uh, uh, taken captive and brought into exile. And so chap Isaiah chapter 9 is all about sort of images that Isaiah is painting about what this is going to look like. And one of the images is of darkness. He describes it as dwelling in darkness. He said, you guys were supposed to be a light, and, and you weren't. And so this land, once the conquest comes, once you are exiled out of here, it's going to feel like darkness. 
And then he uses another uh, picture. He says, hey, all of these tribes, these 12 tribes that are of Israel, well, there's going to be two tribes that are going to feel a particular brunt of the pain. They're the ones that are going to experience kind of the first go at it, and it's the land of Zebulun and Nephtali. Now, if you remember, uh, we, have a, we have a just sort of a map here to help you see, and uh, I know that uh, our bassist, Jay, he's a social studies teacher, and so he told me backstage, he's like, I love maps. I get all, I get all riled up for maps. So he, this is for you, Jay. Here's our map, right? And so if we look at, uh, if we look at uh, Israel, here's, here is Israel and the 12 tribes and all of their different plot points, and we said that Nephtali and Zebulun were the northernmost uh, tribes. They're the ones kind of uh, uh, up there in the north. And there was a major trade route that went through those two tribes. And so when Assyria came, when the conquest started, they marched down that road, they marched down that trade route, and they hit Nephtali and Zebulun first. It was sort of like almost like a stain on their history, that they were the first who'd really experienced the brunt of this exile. And so Isaiah says, well, woe to you, uh, Nephtali and Zebulun, you were sort of that, those first ones to experience that. But, but, Isaiah says, there's hope. He said that someday God is going to restore this land. God is going to come and put you back to normal. He's going to make you into that nation, holy and set apart for God again. And when he does it, however he's going to do it, he's going to do it through Nephtali and Zebulun. He, he's going to send a child. And when he sends that child, that child somehow is going to come from this region and is going to work through this region, and you're going to be the ones to really catalyze this new thing that's going on. It would all start in Zebulun and Nephtali. They were going to be the first, to, they first taste the bitterness of exile, and now somehow they are going to be the start of it when the child comes. And 700 years later, a child grows up in Nazareth, which is in Zebulun. And then today we read that a child starts his ministry, this child starts his ministry in Copernicum. So if you look on the map, you'll see where Nazareth and Copernicum are. There they are, right in the lands of Zebulon and Naphtali. And so we see in our passage today, it says that this, this is true. Jesus grew up in Nazareth and he moved shop. He sort of moved his operation, his headquarters. He moved it to Copernicum right there on the lake. Uh, in Nephtali, so that Isaiah's uh, prophecy would come true, that out of these two lands, the child would come. He writes it this way in Isaiah 9. He says, Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So we see this land is the one that this child is going to come to, and of his government, as his kingdom, there will be no end forever. But we're also in our passage this morning, we're given a few more details about this land. We're given a few more things that we can become aware of. It says that it was the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now what does that mean? That seems a little random. Well, he gives us these three images of what this land was like. And the first one, he says, is the way of the sea. Our text says Jesus set up shop in Copernicum, located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it was positioned, well, the thing about Copernicum is that it was positioned right along, like I said before, this major trade route. It's right here if you, if you want to see. This major trade route that went right through Copernicum, kind of caught Nazareth on its way, if you can see, uh, kind of off the coast of the sea. And so they called this, this, this route, they called it the Via Mares, which means 
the way of the sea. It's Latin for the way of the sea. And so, interesting, 700 years earlier, Isaiah says, hey, there's this child that's going to come. He's going to come by the way of the sea. And then Jesus comes on the scene. He's raised in Nazareth. He sets up shop in Copernicum, which is right on the way of the sea. And the thing about Copernicum is because it was located there, right on that central hub, right on that route, it was a real center for economic and political uh, 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 um, establishment. It was, it was a hopping city. Think about it. There's this, all this fresh water, fishing and fresh water right there at Copernicum's fingertips. And, of course, this major route that brought people from all over the world through it. So it was like this hub. Jesus didn't choose to set up his shop in some remote village. He said, I'm going to go right where the action is. And most of his miracles, most of his ministry is, is set in and around Copernicum, in and around that little region of Galilee. See, Jesus decides that he was going to be with the public. I think that's something we can take from that. When he says, by the way of the sea, man, Jesus said, I am not going to hide in the shadows. I'm stepping out and I'm going to be right where all the action is. I'm going to be right by the way of the sea. And then it says, beyond the Jordan. Now, beyond the Jordan, if you look at the map, uh, the Jordan is that, uh, you know, so you see the top, the, the sea uh, up here. The Dead Sea is the one down below. The Sea of Galilee is up at the top. And then that little line right down there, that's the Sea of, that's the Jordan, right? And it was historically uh, kind of understood that kind of beyond the Jordan, that's sort of where you started getting uh, the Gentiles. That's, that's where you started getting sort of the non-religious people. We didn't really, if you were a religious person that day, you didn't really talk much about going out that way. Beyond the Jordan was sort of uh, something we didn't talk about, sort of the other side of the tracks. In fact, some even called it the, simply the other side. It's like the place, the, the place we don't speak of. It's just sort of the other side. Later on in Matthew, Jesus is going to make his disciples go there. And so it says in Matthew 14, he says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get on a boat. He made them. They didn't want to go. He made them get on a boat and go ahead of him to the other side. Ooh, the other side. That, that's where all the, the people we don't really want to talk about are on the other side. That's beyond the Jordan. And then we get this Galilee to the Gentiles, which is really communicating the same thing. The Galilee was sort of known as a place of mixed races and mixed people. Because again, when the conquest happened 700 years earlier, when, Israel, when Assyria came and marched down into those regions, they brought with them all sorts of other people from other lands to mix with that, that region. That's how you exiled people. You were trying to get rid of their culture and their identity. So you took all the best people and you shipped them out somewhere else and then you brought a whole bunch of other people to come and you just mixed them all together. And particularly in that uh, northern area, it was the center for this mixture. And so over 700 years, there's this reputation of Galilee. Galilee wasn't really the best, uh, uh, most reputable place. Uh, oh, you, you live in Galilee. If you were from Jerusalem, you'd be like, oh, you live in Galilee? Oh, yeah, kind of like you people over there. Oh, that's, that's cute. Okay, that's nice. There was distinct differences between them down to how they uh, lived, how they worshipped, uh, even down to their accent. There's a story uh, of Peter, uh, and there's a group of people that recognize him, and he's about to deny Jesus three times. This is right at the end of the story. And they say, you're that guy, uh, you're that guy who's, with, who's with Jesus from Galilee, right? They say that specifically. You're the, you're the Galilean. 
And Peter's like, I'm not, no, no, that's not me. I don't know who you're talking about. And they go, yes, you are. We can tell by your accent. They literally can say, like, no, 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 you're, you're from that part of town. Your accent gives it away. You're one of those people over there. So this Galilee, the Galilee to the Gentiles, beyond the Jordan, this was the place where the pagans lived. This was the kind of second-class citizens lived. And Jesus decided to set up shop there. Jesus said, I'm going to be public, and I'm going to go to the pagans. I'm going to go to the places that need it. There is this darkness here, and I am the light, and I need to be there on the Sea of Galilee, beyond the Jordan, the Galilee to the Gentiles. He went to the darkest place to bring the light of a new dawn. And when he got there, it says in the scriptures many times uh, that his message went quickly, right? He started speaking, and because he's on that route, that information highway, he starts saying things, and poof, it spreads. Because this is where Jesus chose to be. He chose to be on the crossroads of the world to reach those who were far from God in darkness and needing a light. This is where Jesus chose to be. And his message, it says he began to preach. And what comes out of his mouth? What's the first thing he says? He wants to talk about what? The kingdom of heaven. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is here. Now, to, in, order, in order to understand these words, we actually need to walk through the story a bit. We need to go back. We need to hear what was going on throughout the story of the Bible to understand what Jesus meant when he said kingdom in this passage. So come with me. We're going all the way back. Guess where we're going? Genesis. It's time to go back. It's another one of those Brian sermons where we got to go back to Genesis. But here we go. Now stay with me here because we're going to put it all together when we get to the end. But in Genesis, Genesis in the beginning. Let's, let's go there. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. This is light and this darkness theme we've been looking at, right? Meaning and purpose and love and connection with the Almighty. But sin enters the world. A darkness covers the earth. But God has a master plan to bring the world back into his wonderful light. God decides, I'm going to put the world back together, and I have a specific way I'm going to do it. So he goes to a man named Abram, later known as Abraham. And in Genesis 12, he gives us the first kind of uh, uh, hint, the first detail of how he's going to bring this light back into the darkness. In Genesis 12, he says this to Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and you will be a blessing, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is God's master plan. He says, I'm going to restore the world, and the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to create a nation. And through this nation, I'm going to bless this nation, but not just so that the nation will experience a blessing, but so that they can then too be a blessing to everyone. All peoples on the earth will be blessed because I've chosen you to be a nation. Now, the word nation here is the word in the Hebrew for it's goy. And goy is a political term. Uh, you could have used other words to mean like family or kin, but it was very specifically a political nation. It was a civil word. And it meant a, a, a group of people with a common land and a common language and a common government and a common interest. I'm going to make you a nation. And that's exactly what he does. He creates a literal nation. Abraham was going to be the father of this nation. So God's rescue plan from the beginning was to make a nation that would bless the world. 
And God didn't deviate from that plan for the rest of the Bible. This is what he's going to do. Now this nation begins to grow. They begin to get bigger until the point where Egypt enslaves them. And they're enslaved to Egypt until finally God rescues them and brings them out into the desert to begin to find their land. And there God lays out his laws, his politics, his ways for, they, for how to live together. He brings them out. He says, now I'm going to establish my covenant, my agreement between us. And I'm going to give you my laws so that I can be your king. We're, we're, going to, we're establishing this nation now. And here, I'm going to give you these things. I'm going to give you my politics. I'm going to give you my ways. I'm going to give you my laws so that as you live together under that law, it will be a blessing to everyone. Everyone will look at that and go, that's way better than anything we've ever come up with. So look what he says in Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, he says, Now if you obey me fully, he's talking to Israel here, they're out in the desert, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's reiterating his plan. This is what, I, this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm going to pull you out. I'm going I'm to make you this uh, different, distinct uh, nation, right? The word holy here, as is, is many of you probably know, it's the word set apart. It literally means to set apart, to be different, to be distinct. And so what my plan is, is that if you, if you follow my ways, if you follow my laws, if you live under my politic, well, then you're going to be blessed, and then all the nations are, are going to be blessed. They're going to see something different about you. And here, kingdom and nation are synonymous here. He's going to create this kingdom nation, this literal place that's going to be pulled out and different so that the world might see it. I love how the psalmist puts it. Uh, the psalmist puts it this way. He says, may God be gracious to us and bless us. He's, uh, uh, Israel is talking here. May God be gracious to us and bless us, right? This is what Abraham, this is what God said to Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make my face shine on you. There's that light language again. So that, right, there's the point. It's not just I'm going to bless you and shine on you just for your sake. No, no, no. I'm going to do that so that your ways, God, may be known on earth. Your salvation among the nations, the other nations, right? You're, you're going to be this distinct nation. We're going to, you're, you're, we're, you're going to bless us, God, by giving us your law, giving us your agreement, your covenant. We're going to live under this law that's so much better and more beautiful than anything the world has ever seen before. And as we do that, man, the other nations, they're going to look at it, and they're going to, they're going to know your ways, God. There's the salvation itself. They're going to see it through how we interact and live together. This, this was God's master plan. This is what God intended from the beginning. Are you tracking so far? Let's keep going. So after this, they start, you know, they have to wander for a little bit, right? But eventually they get to the promised land, and Joshua leads them into the promised land. They begin, they begin uh, you know, seriously taking stuff over. God said, I'm going to create out of this darkness, I'm going to create light for you, and you're going to live in this land, and it's right in the middle everything. It's, it's right in the middle of the known world. It's public, right on the route, so that people will know as they see you, as they pass by, they're going to know it's you. So he gives them this amazing land. He drives out the darkness of other nations, and they're fairly successful at it. 
they really uh, take hold of this land. They follow God and they take hold of this land and they begin to celebrate. And at the end of Joshua, Joshua uh, is, about, is about to pass on. And so sort of as a final remarks, he gives one last piece of advice. He says this in Joshua 23. He says, the Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. Man, that word keeps coming up. Hey, you're a nation that came into this land and God drove out the other nations before you. So be careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourself with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Joshua says, now remember. Remember who you are. Remember your identity. Don't be like the other nations. Don't associate with them. Don't ally yourself with them. Don't intermarry with them. Drive them out completely. Don't let them stay in your lands. Don't let them stay and hang around because they will tempt your heart. And you will lose that distinctness. You'll lose that saltiness. You'll lose that holiness that makes a distinction between the other nations. You'll lose your very identity as someone that's supposed to shine light into the darkness. You'll become dark yourself. And guess how many chapters it takes for Israel to forget all that? Two. Two chapters later. From the end of Joshua to Judges 1, they don't remember the words that they are given. They don't remember to drive them all out. They don't remember to ally and to intermarry and to associate. And it's minor at first. In Judges 1, it gives us tribe by tribe and what they did. They left a little bit of, uh, of, of land over here and, and, and they let their enemies live on that corner of their land. And, and even one of the stories is that they left one survivor, just one. And that survivor ran off and started a town somewhere else. They left a, a, a bit. And soon it grew. And the associations and the alliances and the, the marriages began to build. And slowly but surely, Israel loses its identity. Small at first, but little by little, they give more and more and more away. Kings are established whose hearts go towards the other gods and the other nations, and it gets worse and worse and worse until finally we get to the point in Isaiah 9 where Isaiah looks at it and goes, guys, we are way over our heads here. You've totally lost everything you were supposed to be as a nation. You've lost all of it. And now you're going, now God's going to take it all away because there's no identity left here. You're not doing what you were called to do. But God's plan never fails. And in the midst of the darkness, we read in Isaiah that he gives hope. Like we talked about last week. He gives hope. He calls it darkness. He says that Zephyrin and Naphtali, man, you guys are going to be the first to get it. But a child is coming. A child is coming. And I'm going to reestablish my kingdom, my nation, through him. I'm not going to start a new plan. Hear that now. God doesn't say, all right, well, that plan didn't work, so let's, let's try something new here. God says, no, no, no. My plan never fails. And so what I decided we were going to do in, in Genesis 12, we're going to keep doing, but I'm going to bring the child who's going to fulfill it all. I'm going to bring the child who's going to reestablish my kingdom. Look what he says again in Isaiah 9. He says, of the greatness of his government. He doesn't shy away from this. His government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. 
establishing and upholding it, keeping it going. Not a new plan, but establishing and upholding it, keeping it going from what was originally designed and with justice and with righteousness from that time and forevermore. And friends, we know the end of the story. 700 years later, the child arrives. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach what? Oh, now it makes sense. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Oh, oh, that makes sense now. Right, because that's what God was trying to do this whole time. He, He wanted to establish a nation. He wanted to establish a kingdom. And when that nation, when that kingdom lived under his law, under his covenant, under his politic, under his way, when they did that faithfully, man, it was beautiful. And God would bless that because his law and his way are the best way to live. So they're going to be totally blessed by living under this, uh, this law, this politic, this way. And as they live under this blessing, God's face is going to shine upon them. And when they do that, the other nations are going to walk by on the viramares of their world and go, oh, look, what's that about? Oh, that's that's good. I, I want a part of that. Or they won't, but at least they'll be rejecting Jesus and not something else. See, this was the master plan from the beginning. Jesus came to fulfill God's plan, his nation, his kingdom. He has come to call the people who will obey God's law, God's politic, God's way, in order to be a different, distinct, holy, set-apart people so that his light might shine in the world And friends, he calls it, Jesus calls it, his church. Jesus calls it his church. Later on in Matthew 16, he's talking to his disciples about this thing. And they're all sorts of confused. They're like, so you've come to, like, create the kingdom. Like, what is that going to look like? And he says it this way in Matthew 16. He's talking to Peter, and he says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, I will give you the keys to the kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to hand you the keys, kind of like a Ferrari. I'm going to hand you the keys to this thing. You're going to get the kingdom now. And on it, Peter, you're going to build my church. Ooh. See, church, in the Greek, the church is the word ecclesia. And the word ecclesia in those days never had a religious connotation. Ecclesia was not a religious word back in that day. It meant a civil institution. It meant a nation. It meant a civil uh, group of people that lived under a way uh, in order to live properly in the world. It didn't have a religious connotation. So when Jesus says Ecclesia, he's connecting all of this Old Testament imagery of kingdom and nation and everything God had been trying to do from Genesis 12 on. Jesus said, I didn't come to start something new. new. I've come to fulfill and establish my kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So you, Peter, here's the keys. Here's the keys to this thing. And on it, build my church. So if you're part of Christ's church now, friends, if you have decided to join it, you have joined the kingdom of heaven. You are part of God's kingdom. Think literally here. You're part of God's kingdom with God as king, Christ as king on the throne. You seek to obey God's laws, God's politics, God's way with others in a local church setting. That's what we do together in a local church setting. We live under God's law together. 
And as we live together, hopefully in peace and justice and righteousness, as, as, Jesus, as Isaiah said in, in chapter 9, as we do that together here in a local manifestation of God's kingdom here, the world will drive by Main Street and go, there's something different about that place. I, I want in there. Those are, the, those are the people that love each other. Those are the people that don't gossip when things go on. Those are the people that instead of going somewhere else, they just face each other face to face and work out their problems. I, I, that's weird. Wait, wait, those are the people that when somebody is in need, they will give sacrificially so that that need can be met. That they're the person, like my neighbors, when they saw a group of you move me in five years ago, asked me, what was all that about? And I was able to say, that's my church. I, I belong to that. I belong to that group. That's, that's, my, that's my people. And they go, I've never experienced anything like that before. I said, yeah, it took us 45 minutes to move us in. Because that many of my people came. That's the kingdom of God. A group of people who have decided that we're going to live under God's law, God's rule, God's politics, and the whole rest of the world will go, I, it's a little weird, but for some reason I like it. For some reason I, I want to be a part of that. And just like Israel, we face the same temptations. We go through the same struggles they do in trying to live out this distinctness, set-apartness, holy life in the face of the world. We're tempted just like that, them to, to draw and are drawn to ally or to marry or associate ourselves with the nations and kingdoms of this world. And there are many. And just like Israel, we face these just like Jesus did. Because if you remember, in our passage this morning, just four verses earlier, Jesus is being tempted by the devil, by the, by the spiritual forces. The gates of Hades are trying to knock this thing down. And what's the last temptation that is given for Jesus? Take a look in Matthew 4. The devil took him to the high mountain, the very high mountain, and showed him what? Ooh, all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And they look nice at times, don't they? All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, What? Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Because you can't have two masters. And my allegiance is to God's kingdom and to no other kingdom of this world. Jesus gets tempted like the Israelites, but where the Israelites failed, Jesus succeeded and then calls us to do the same. Repent, for the kingdom is near. It's at hand. We follow Jesus' example by disavowing all other allegiances, all other allies, all other connections, and we serve him only. Now, here's the thing. Now, the New Testament writers, they begin to catch on to this idea. They begin to see how the story is weaving it, uh, itself together. And they begin to go, oh, oh, I get it now. Okay, and then they begin to write. They begin to telling their stories. As God's holy people, we then don't belong to this world. Our citizenship is not here. So while we are on the earth, we are to view ourselves as foreigners and exiles passing through until we get home. If, if we have to make a choice, if we only can serve God alone, if you can't serve two masters, then God says, then who to this day, as Joshua said at the end of his 
final speech, who to this day will you serve? It's time to pick. I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world and their splendor if you will only bow down. And Jesus says, serve him only. And so these New Testament writers, they say, okay, well, if we're just, if, if our citizenship is somewhere else, if, if we're not of this world, if we're, if we're to go home, the, they start to play on this, right? We actually use this language, right? When somebody who is faithful in our fellowship, loves the Lord, is faithful in our fellowship, when they die, what do we say? We say they went, they went home. We use that language. And if we, they go home, that means that when they were here, they weren't home, right? They die and they go to their kingdom. They die and finally get to go home. They were exiles and foreigners and strangers and sojourners in this world. And then they finally get to pass into glory and go home. Paul picks up on this idea. He's writing to a, a church in Philippi. And he says this. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. He uses that, that word, citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so we eagerly await, while we're here, we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord, the king, our king, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Peter also uh, picks up on this. And I love what he says. This really, if man, if this is like a home run type of passage, this is it. Peter says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, priesthood, a holy nation. All that, all that language sound familiar? Priesthood, language. And friends, this is New Testament. This isn't, we're not in the Old Testament anymore. This is New Testament stuff here. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of what? Darkness and into his wonderful light. There's that, there's that theme again. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then get this. Guess what he calls us? He says, so therefore, therefore, friends, next slide, therefore, friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, this is how he identifies you. As a foreigner and exile, not home yet. How are we to live in the world as foreigners and exiles waiting to get home? To abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. To live under God's way. Live such good lives among the pagans. There's that pagan word again. Though you, they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Isn't that the point? that we live such good lives, that we together as a church community, as a, as a foretaste of the kingdom right here in this room, as we live together under God's law, that anyone who looks at us might see our good deeds and then glorify God in heaven. That's the plan. That's the plan. And it's always been the plan. You're not home, friends. You are foreigners, exiles in the world. Your citizenship is not here. You belong to the kingdom of heaven. So let's put this all together. Uh, I would like to invite the band. They can come on up at this point. Uh, let's put this all together. Now, here's the thing. 
I'm going to say a few things, and then I'm going to ask a few questions, and then I'm going to get off the stage as fast as I possibly can. Because we need to address the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is that in two days, it's no secret that an election is happening. Where we have been wrestling with what it looks like to live in this nation, while, friends, we are acknowledging this morning that you don't really belong to it. Amen? There have been many things said and written and declared about this election, its importance, and how you should respond. But as Christians, there are deeper, more fundamental questions that haven't been asked, that aren't being talked about, that go to the root of our identity in the first place and ask us questions about the very nature of our participation. Questions like, what's God's master plan for the church? I hope you can answer that at this point. If not, I'll send you my... What is God's master plan for the church? Where are we public? Where are the viramaris of our lifetime? Maybe it's a workspace or a neighborhood or a digital platform. The public places where you interact with the world. And friends, who are your pagans? Now, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but you get the drift. Who are the people that you are interacting with on the viramaris of your life? who don't know Jesus, who are living in darkness and desperately need to see a new light. And then how is it, how are we, his people, his nation, his kingdom, to live our lives as a community so that they might see that good light? What is God's master plan for how they are going to know that salvation belongs to the Lord? It's through his church. It's through us. It's through God's kingdom. And if our citizenship is the kingdom of heaven, how are we, as foreigners and exiles in this land, who are just passing through on our way home, how are we to engage this whole process? See, there's these deeper questions that need to be answered. How, how are we, as, as, a, as a passerby, or as a foreigner, as an exile, who don't belong here, this is not our home, how do we engage in this whole process? Am I allied or married or associated with another kingdom or nation or party or candidate? Has my heart, maybe even just a little bit, has, have I given allegiance? Have I served another God but King Jesus? Do I worship the Lord my God and serve him only? Because there is no and after God. It's God and nothing. And Jesus marked this new people. Jesus identified with this new people in a supper. Because he gathered his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. And he said, listen, guys, it's about to start. And so I want to do something to remind us that this isn't your home. That from this time on, you're, you're going to really feel like a foreigner in exile here. But as we take the cup and we, and we take the bread, as we share it together, it will remind us of the feast and the party we're going to have when you get home. Take a look what he says here, Matthew 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, he says, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when you come home. I'll save it for you when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom someday. When we all get home, when we all get to heaven, man, what a day of rejoicing it will be. But you're not home yet. And so as you struggle and as you, um, you know, the stress and the struggle and the weightiness of this next week, friends, my prayer is that you will begin to identify, you'll begin to ask these questions, pour over these scriptures this week, I pray, and ask yourself, what is my identity? And how can I declare no matter what happens that Jesus is my Lord, my King, and I belong to a nation, a kingdom, a people somewhere else. And I'm heading there, Jesus. Save the cup for me. And so let's, let's sing a little here. If you would, just put on your mask. Let's, let's just sing a couple of these courses and then we'll engage in this identity marker of who we are as sojourners, foreigners, strangers walking through the land as we make our way 